Hello and welcome to another episode of CBO Speaks. I'm your host, Donna Sheely. Today, I'm excited to talk with Brad Kendricks, Executive Vice President, uh, Finance and Operations VP over, and you're going to have to explain this because I'm probably not doing it right, <laughs> over the uh, Maricopa Community College system. So you're actually a CBO of two schools, Chandler Gilbert Community College and Mesa Community College. Am I, did I say that right? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Okay. Just want to be clear. I want to make sure I get the title right. Right. Well, anyway, thank you for being with us today. And we are so glad to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Donna. It's great to join. I always like to start with my guests telling us their journey that led them to being a CBO. So tell us how you arrived at higher ed as a career. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it starts back when you're experiencing higher ed as a student. And, you know, in those times, you know, of of all things, as an 18-year-old, I thought I wanted to be an urban planning major. Oh, wow. And yeah, not exactly the typical thing that an 18-year-old thinks that they want to do. And in in the end, my, uh, you know, drawing skills did not exactly line up with <laughs> my expectations of what that career would be. But one of the pieces that kind of took away from that and part of the reason that it appealed on the front end is that I was interested in this idea of doing something that was technical and creative, but also that allowed me to provide some kind of public service. And, you know, as my interests and understanding of my skills changed over the course of that college career, I found myself in business school. But I was the one random business student who was concurrently taking classes in public administration because I had a, a clearly identified interest in being involved in government and, you know, doing something that was a little bit more mission focused. So, you know, that's that's kind of how I got into government work, which is where I spent the beginning of my career. So I worked for the state of Arizona and for the county and was interested in a whole lot of different things from a policy perspective and spent a lot of that time in, in transportation and working in criminal justice. And while what I ultimately found is that working with accounting and budgeting got me a, a seat at the table to try a whole lot of different things. And I learned a ton trying about uh, trying out different policy areas that were interesting to me. But I think the thing that I learned the most in that process was how to work in government and how to make government and public service work for what it is that we're trying to accomplish. So th that's kind of how I got into public service. Now, when I finished grad school, I was a 20 something with time on his hands and said, maybe I'll teach some classes. So I was, I was teaching accounting in the community college system. So the, the local colleges were a known quantity to me, but it was more of like an extracurricular activity <laughs> until several years later into my career when, uh, I had a, another colleague who spent most of his career in higher education who planted the seed that higher ed might be a viable next step. So, you know, and then through some serendipity and good timing, uh, it just so happened that I found myself transitioning into a leader, leadership position at the local community college. Okay. Now, what was that first local community college uh, position that you uh, were into for higher ed? Yeah. So I was, I was hired in at Chandler Gilbert Community College, where I'm still working 10 years later uh, as a, the associate dean for business. So that was sort of a mid-level management position where I was handling uh, a variety of different kind of business topics from uh, research to, you know, finance and procurement to human resources. And, you know, as 
the last decade has passed, you know, that uh, sphere has continued to grow with new responsibilities as I got into higher levels of leadership. You have to explain a little bit more about this um, overarching concept of the community college, because you are basically um, over two schools, but you're over, are you over all of the community college system? How does that work? Not at all. So the Maricopa Community Colleges, where I work in the Phoenix area, we are one of the larger community college systems in the country. You know, we cover, we have 10 separately accredited colleges that are covering an area about the size of the state of Connecticut. So we have a lot of different communities we serve. We're fairly spread out. And, uh, you know, operate at that level. So I am not over the system in general. We have a system office that manages all of those things. Um, I work for two neighboring colleges that serve kind of the southeast part of the Phoenix area. So those are two of the, you know, two of the largest of the 10 and serve a fairly robust area there with multiple campuses and so forth. Um, but we, we work really well across the different colleges in our system and with our system office to, to do things that make sense for the, the whole group. Okay. Well, we definitely have to talk about that because being over two, I mean, what are some of the challenges that you have in, in being over or, or might not be as many challenges being over the two uh, universities or community colleges um, at this time? How does that work for you? You know, it's been a really interesting journey. So the, the thing about it is that we have separate schools and they tend to run pretty independently and have their own histories and cultures and interests. But we have recognized that these schools have a shared identity and a lot of, you know, overlapping interest in the sort of modern era. And while our schools came up serving separate communities and really developing separate expertise and separate culture and uh, coming together in a sort of interesting tapestry, we're now in a place where our communities have far fewer boundaries than they used to. And while Phoenix may have been a series of small towns before, now it is the fourth or fifth largest city in the country and a fairly sprawling place. So as our students have become less geographically bound within that area, you know, we have to think a little bit differently about how we do the work that we do. So, you know, I think the the opportunity to work in both locations has been, you know, a testament to trying some of that out. Now, candidly, this started off as uh, me providing some coverage for a short-term vacancy and now we're three years later, so I, I think there's a Gilligan's Island joke somewhere in there. Right. Um, <laughs> but but it really has been a unique experience because, like, I think a lot of people you talk to reflect on their careers and how they learn at one job and get experiences and take some of those good things and some of those lessons learned onto the next job. But it it feels kind of next level to be doing that kind of testing and learning and sharing across two experiences at the same time. So that's, that's really what this has been about. I guess it's a great opportunity, though, because I'm sure that's growing you professionally in a way that other people that may be at one school um, are not getting. So I think that's great that you're able to to even handle that and do that. You Are you still an instructor? Is that are you still instructing? I, I do teach, uh, but I so I taught in the community college system for several years and stepped away from that with, you know, as my responsibilities at the colleges grew. But I currently uh, am an instructor at the university level. And the reason why I ask is, you know, a lot of times you that that's kind of rare to see someone who's still able to connect with the students on that level and still, you know, be in that um, CBO position. So do you have 
you know, like a connection? Do you feel like that's something that helps you in your role being an instructor still, being hands on with the kids and being a CBO? Absolutely. And and that's why I do it. You know, for, for a lot of that time, you know, my frame of reference was into how community colleges worked and how education worked was as a student and then as an instructor. And when I stepped away from that, candidly, there was something missing in terms of being able to continue to stay current in practice and understand some of the challenges that we're facing. And uh, so I got back into it. And I specifically got back into teaching during the pandemic. <laughs> and part of that was part of that was on purpose because we were dealing with some things that no one else had dealt with before. Like we were making transitions that were really uncomfortable. And I think it helped me to help steer some of those policies by having the context of dealing with the challenge of the students and the continuity and the technology and everything at the same time that we were asking our instructors to do that. With you being boots on the ground, you're able to see firsthand this is what the instructors are dealing with. And that probably I most definitely helped you make some policy and some decisions on the higher end for sure. So talk to me a little bit. You, you talked about challenges. Let's get a little bit more specific about some of the challenges that you're seeing right now um, as a CBO is, you know, we got a lot of things going on, a lot of changes, a lot of, as you know, a lot of um uh, uncertainties. And so how are you handling that, especially at the two colleges? I think at the two colleges and at the system, we're, we're facing a lot of those big things concurrently. You know, the higher education in general was facing a change in demographics, say change in enrollment levels, you know, different patterns of how people get education and at what pace. So, you know, we're in the middle of saying, what's the best way to approach this you know, we, we're in an era where we have a lot more clarity about what we think students need. And we're being a lot more honest about the level of supports that students need in order to, to do the thing that we say that we want them to do. And in order to do that, that takes different approaches that often takes more resources than we are used to getting in this era. And then you add on top of that, the fact that we have, you know, fewer traditionally aged students, at least in our area. And that that's impacting enrollment, the fact that there's greater competition and more options for people. So that's, you know, calling into question what everyone's lane is in the higher education ecosystem. And then you add a pandemic on top of that. Right. So, oh my goodness. So re really so much of this is, you know, about planting the right seeds to have the kind of conversations that we need to have to keep those doors open. And, you know, so much of of higher education. I think higher education is renowned for being planted in tradition and staying current and, you know, trying to keep steady through whatever is going on in society. And, you know, maybe every generation says this, but I feel like we're in more tumultuous times than, uh, than we always acknowledge. And as part of that, we really need to start opening up some of those doors and windows that maybe we limited ourselves to in the past and, and have the card hard conversations about what really is core and what really is important and what types of things that we can do to grow and sustain that part of what we do for our community. And are you finding that perhaps this pandemic is making these conversations easier to have with some of the people who may not, you know, they're, they're in this traditional uh, bubble, so to speak. Do you think that's kind of helping that they're saying, okay, wait a minute, maybe we do need to look and make some, some changes and do some things differently. It's funny because I think the answer is yes. There's a lot of things that we have done because we felt like we were forced to do them. However, we still have kind of the, 
the personality type as a business that once you get to that place, then that's the place you're going to stay. So I, while, while we have made people some level of comfortable with the changes that we've had to make, I think we have not yet made people comfortable with change in general. So getting to a place where we can consistently engage in this conversation, even though when there's not an immediate crisis, I think will be important to us continuing to be flexible and continuing to take on those opportunities. But you're absolutely right that we've had the chance to do some things and to help some students out in ways that we had not been focusing on before because of the fact that that everybody's cheese was moved concurrently. And so that kind of leads me into growth and talking about things that are stretching you in your role. And obviously, we kind of touched on that a little bit. If you can talk to us a little bit more about that, because having those conversations, obviously, you have to have some skill and communication. Like, um, what are some things that you're doing or that you feel that you've had to do to help you grow to have these conversations and to change the minds and to help people understand that we got to make these changes. I think one of the the most important things as a CBO to do is to have broader context. And you know, we we come from lines of business that are very focused on technical details and precision and analysis. And those those are super important. Like you get fired if you don't do those things right. right However, right. <laughs> I, I think we have a responsibility and a skill set that extends beyond that. And it's beyond just answering the question in front of us and more to the place of helping people to clearly tell a story, to interpret, to, to give options, and to think through how to accomplish the mission. And so much of that has to do with being engaged as a business officer in other parts of the business. So, you know, just coming into this and being the best accountant one can be is, is admirable to a level, but it gets to the point that if you don't have a really clear understanding of how the issues in higher education and how regulation and how best practices in teaching and learning, how those things are impacting how we prioritize, then we're not going to be in a good position to help steer institutions through that decision making. Let's talk about the passion that you have, because I definitely hear it in your voice. And I want to talk more about what you are currently passionate about, you know, specifically some of the issues that you are starting to explore or research that you're like, you know what, this is something that I really am looking forward to and that I really want to get behind. Yeah, with my personality type, I think there's a lot of those things at any point okay. in time. <laughs> but but one that I'll t- take a little time to, to think about or talk about is uh, using that idea of analytics and storytelling in our business. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity and exciting stuff that's going on right now. But one of the, one of the things that surprised me about higher education coming in is that we had so much data, so much information about what our students do and when they do it and how they do it. And at a, at a certain level, like we've constructed barriers to when we stop digging into that and when we don't know what to do with that information. And over the course of, of my decade working in higher education, I think there's been a lot of super interesting things happening in terms of how we analyze that information and how deep we grow and how we, how we break down the barriers between all of this information that we have in order to put something together that tells a meaningful story and helps us to really understand what's going on beyond the superficial level. So, you know, there's great tools out there. There's more and more interesting conferences out there in terms of really, really digging into this. And I love anything that requires business officers to come outside of their lane 
and understand, again, that greater context, the, the broader environment that we're operating in, to really be able to tell that holistic story about what where we are and where we need to go. There has to be a certain personality type to be able to do that. Do you agree with that? Or do you think anybody can do that or learn? I think it's all of the above. Like, obviously, okay. when you, you know, when you're looking for a chief business officer type positions, you know, I would advocate for folks who like putting puzzles together, who like thinking outside of boxes, who, you know, tend to be resourceful in that regard. But that's not the only role in this conversation. And one of the important things, and I think analytics is a great example of how you get there, is that it requires a variety of personality types and skill sets. And, you know, somebody who is inquisitive and interested and resourceful can get you a certain level of direction. But there are big parts of these organizations that involve very deep subject matter knowledge. And those people might not have that personality type that you're talking about that digs into that area, but they absolutely have the keys to the car. And what you need is people building bridges across those different parts of the organization in order to, to open those doors, to open those options, and to allow you to move to that next level of analysis and understanding strategy and so forth. So collaboration is a big part of that. I mean, that's that's definitely something that CBOs and all of the staff in the higher ed need to work together. And so as we go into that, let's talk about mentorship, um, because as you are growing and learning, I'm sure there's people that are um, under you that perhaps you might want to help out. And I'm sure you have a mentor perhaps that you're looking up to. So talk to me about your philosophy on mentorship. Well, I've been lucky to have some really good influences at key times in my career. And rarely did they come in the form of the TV mentor who sits over coffee with you and tells you how to make good decisions. <laughs> right. more, more, more often, they were, they were folks that I really respected and liked the example of what they were doing and how they conducted their business. Or folks who were in leadership positions to me that were free with their time and with sharing their expertise and then gave me the space to figure out how to do it. So that's the same type of approach that I take. Now, I, I'm still on the relatively young end of the CBO spectrum. So, so as such, you know, I, I work with a lot of people who have a lot more experience than I do at different levels of the organization. And as such, I personally try to stay very, very open to learning from those people with deep expertise and learning with those people who have the wisdom of experience and then use my position to leverage that to make to make better things happen. At the same time, I try to be free with my time with my teams in terms of really focusing on explaining why we do the things that we do. And I know a lot of a lot of people, especially with the pressures that we face on the jobs now, who, you know, default to showing you what to do. And, you know, that's a valid stopgap measure a lot of the time when something needs to get done. But it's really, there's really no substitution for giving people the space to figure that out on their own so that they can run in the future. And I, I try to embody that as much as possible with my teams. And speaking of that, so were there any challenges or, you know, I, I like to say that failures are just, you know, um, mistakes that we learn from. So are there any things that you can think of that you were like, you know what, I didn't do that so great, but I learned from it and I moved on. What would be a lesson from something that maybe you did, didn't do so well in the past that you, you've learned a lot from? 
you know, I always feel like I'm sidestepping questions like this because I have that same approach that you just outlined. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I tend to be fairly tough on myself. And, and as such, I, I tend to be very focused on the things that didn't work out the way that I wanted them to. But when I ask that question of, you know, what would I do differently? Where, you know, where would I wish I would have avoided this? Uh, may, maybe luckily, I don't have any examples of something that I would say that I would, you know, wipe that away and start over again because of the value of the learning that comes with it. And but, so that, that said, like, I tend to make this analogy to the Jenga board game, you know, where you stack the blocks and make the tower taller. And that, that work is very similar because when you approach this work, it's like you pick an issue, you pick one of the blocks and you, you push on it until you get resistance. And some of the time that block slides out pretty easily and you move on to the next thing and you, you count your win. However, more often than not, or just as often, it feels like you run into that block that maybe gets halfway and stops moving. And part of this is about having the discipline, especially in this business, to walk away from that block for a while until the situation changes and then come back to it. So I have lots of blocks and I feel like I'm looking at my blocks every day that are hanging halfway outside of the tower. But at, at least I have the silver lining that I should be able to come back to those at some point when the conditions are right. Yeah, I love that analogy. Okay, thank you so much. That was great. All right, well, we're about to close up, but I want to talk about your future, your vision for yourself and for higher ed. So quickly talk to us about what your future is. You know, like I said before, I think we're in really pivotal times and I'm at... The, the lucky point in my career where I think I have a, a good amount of influence over how some of the things that I can manage are done and some of the conversations that we have at colleges. So, you know, I'm looking forward to continuing to contribute in that way and to try to, to get the institutions that I'm working at to a really strong place. I think there's a lot of opportunity to, again, to open doors that we have not opened before, you know, to explore opportunities and other good examples from outside of our experience that might lead us to make some decisions that we, you know, limited ourselves out of before. So I look forward to that. Uh, I look forward to also trying to help folks come up in the spirit of what we just talked about before. You know, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm cognizant of the fact that we're going to continue to need a lot of really strong leaders to fill the ranks of our higher education institutions in the next decade, two decades and moving forward. So everything that we can do and everything that I can do to help give people, you know, that grace and space to develop as leaders and move up and take on those responsibilities. I think we will do a lot better by our institutions. Well, Brad, thanks for sharing with us today. We appreciate your time and everything you've shared. You can find out more about Brad Kendricks and today's episode by visiting podcast at nakubo.org under professional development, then click online education. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks on Apple Podcasts so that you can get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Brad and myself, I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks. I'm Donna Sheely. Be well. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Susan Wheeler Johnston, President and CEO of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. I hope you enjoy the podcast.